0: So would you all stand with me as we go through Mark 14, 1 through 11? Stand for the reading of God's word. Um, all right. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. And some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been, used, could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, when, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. All right. There is three chapters left in Mark. We are on the finishing, on the like final stretch here to finish this book. This uh, section that we're about to enter is what this whole gospel, what Mark has been leading up to this whole time. This is what everything has been building up towards this. Uh, Mark has been on a speedy pace towards this passion narrative, and from this point on, the whole story is entirely focused on the coming crucifixion of the Messiah. Chapter 14 that we're entering today is the longest chapter in this gospel, longest chapter in Mark, Um, and to point out the importance of this section, out of Mark's 661 verses, I like, you guys like like little geeky facts like this? Out of Mark's 661 verses, 128 of them are devoted to the passion and the resurrection. 242 to the last week of his life, starting at the, at the triumphant entry. That's a lot. Mark is heavily focused, primarily focused on this. It's, it's all leading up to this passion narrative. We're going to see in the coming weeks uh, this develop, this narrative, and Mark's gospel is playing on two basic themes from here on out, the suffering and the triumph of Jesus. Jesus. The suffering of Jesus will be highlighted by his betrayal and the denial of his disciples. His trial before the Sanhedrin and Pilate and its injustice, its mockery, and ultimately his crucifixion with its brutality and its shame. The triumph of Jesus will come through his glorious resurrection on the third day after his crucifixion. This is the whole point. Mark's gospel began with, this is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's all moving forward to this. And while next week we officially start our Easter series, we're going to walk through the steps that lead up to the cross. Uh, This week sort of sets the stage. This passage sets the stage for what's to come. And I want to remind you, as we do every week, this is not just a story. Mark wrote this gospel as a roadmap for disciples. This is written for us as apprentices of Jesus to learn how to walk in the ways of Jesus. So as you study this passage, as you think about this passage, as you read the coming narrative uh, through the passion story, as you discuss it with your friends, your family, keep in mind that there are implications in this text. There are things that we are to live, act, and think by. All right, let's, let's look at our passage this morning. Our passage this morning opens with sort of an editorial comment. Mark's giving us the time and the situation of things, how things are developed. Chapter 14, looking at verse 1, it was two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, for lest there be an uproar in the people. Ancient historians tell us that during the feast of passover the city of jerusalem's population would nearly double there was so it was a swell of people and the religious leaders are looking for a way to arrest jesus to ultimately to kill him but they know he's popular with the people and so if they do it in the open when there's that many people in the city they risk they run the risk of a mob At the end of our passage, we find they find their stealth way of arresting Jesus and Judas. Mark has a very consistent way in the way that he writes. It's literary technique where he inserts these parenthetical ideas. And that's what's happening here. So th- we see this, this opening that the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders are looking for a way to arrest Jesus. Ultimately, they find their way to arrest Jesus in Judas. And Mark inserts this little story of this woman pouring out her oil on Jesus. Scholars call this, it's, it's kind of silly, it's a Markin sandwich. Kids like sandwiches? Is there kids in here this morning? <laughs> you guys are being so quiet. A Markin sandwich. This is what Mark is saying. To best understand what's happening in this beginning passage and this last passage, is by thinking carefully about what's happening in the middle. Think carefully about the woman and her oil and the disciples' responses, and you'll understand what's happening in the opening and the closing passages. This is meditation literature for disciples of Jesus. This is something that we should spend time thinking about. So let's look at her little story a little closer this morning. Verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table Sometimes we we get so familiar with these passages that we just kind of read over them as if they're normal. And I think the closer we move to the cross, the more familiar these passages are, the less controversial, the less issues we have with them. Uh, But just take a second and think about this for a minute. These guys had just finished a meal. They were relaxing. And in comes this woman— who breaks this jar of extremely expensive oil over Jesus' head. To say the least, this was disruptive, right? It was extravagant. It It was a little extra. It would be normal for somebody important at a meal to be anointed, but she just broke all the broke in, and broke all the rules. We can miss some of the social boundaries and the historic perspective here in our context. Here we have a woman interrupting a feast in a room full of men. This would have been, uh, in this particular cultural context, very odd. Quite a cause for confusion and conversation. We know, right, that culture determines what is socially acceptable and permissible and throughout scripture i think we find that the kingdom of god tends to flip what we are what we think is socially acceptable i think in this passage we see some evidence of these upside down expectations i mean from the very fact that where are they having this meal in the house of simon the leper Lepers were outcast, socially excluded, unclean. The very fact that Simon welcomed visitors into his home implies that he was healed of his skin disease. But he was still identified, probably by his neighbors and everyone who knew him, as Simon the leper. He was still considered unclean, socially You keep your distance from this guy. Yet that's where Jesus chose for this to happen. And whether he was clean or unclean, here's Jesus. In the middle of the house, belonging to the leper. He's reclining at the table, sharing a meal together, and then here comes this woman she has this family heirloom this extremely valuable oil so valuable that Mark gives us he, he gives us the value the disciples say that this is worth 300 denarii this is the equivalent of a year's salary it's an expensive little heirloom its high cost means it had it had likely been in her family for generations and was only used in very small portions as a perfume, potentially, for special occasions. This nard was made from a root that was likely imported from Nepal, so it, it was not easy to come by. Think about this for a second. This, this is one of those things where it becomes so familiar. We know this story, but just take a second and think. This would be like somebody taking a a bottle of wine that's worth $70,000 and just dumping it out in front of you. That's, that's crazy. What would be worth, or maybe drinking it, what would be worth opening that bottle? What would be worth opening that bottle? And Mark says... She didn't just open it. She didn't just anoint him with the oil. She cracked the sucker, broke it, and used it all. There was no saving some for later. All in. A year's worth of wages. Just think, what what would that look like? She gave it willingly and without regret. Needless to say, the disciples are offended. Right? This is uh, this is offended. Mark says they were indignant. In their assessment, in their opinion, the oil, this this valuable heirloom, had just been wasted. The complainers here, as good pious Jews, naturally think. Uh, that giving something so valuable to care for the poor would have been far better than pouring it down the drain. Specifically, during this time as the Feast of Passover, it would have been customary, the rabbinic tradition, they would have given alms to the poor. This would have been something they were thinking about because it was seasonally the thing to do, to give alms to the poor. And according to rabbinic custom, it would have earned them a reward from God to give it to the poor. But they're using, I I, I think, they're using the poor to make it seem like their opinion is right, their offense is right. So they scolded her. Let's let's look at this. Verse 6. They scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Jesus is a little bit forceful there. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever, whenever you want, not just when it's seasonally appropriate, whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. They scolded this woman. And Jesus scolds them. That's typical Jesus too, right? Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. Jesus says. This reminds me of a quote from Jim Elliot, the martyred missionary. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's done a be- this woman has done a beautiful thing. He tells them, you will always have the poor with you. This, uh, this can be, I think, mistakenly taken as uh, a reason not to serve the poor. That is not what Jesus is saying. You can't possibly come to that conclusion by reading what Jesus says. This is not a reason not to serve the poor, and Jesus is not putting service to the poor and needy in contrast to extravagant worship. The gospel calls us as Christians to serve those in need, but it also calls us to unrestrained adoration of Christ. This passage it, it underscores our need for total and complete devotion to Jesus. And if we respond to Jesus properly, we know from the rest of the New Testament, if we respond to Jesus properly and total and complete devotion, we will take care of the poor. That's a given. Jesus says this. He says, she has done what she could. So church, think carefully. What does that remind you of in Mark? She has done what she could. We looked at this a few weeks ago. The story of the widow with her two copper coins. Jesus says of that widow that she gave all she had. All that she could. Now, this woman pours out everything she has on Jesus. Both women stand in contrast to the men in the situation. The widow with the two coins is the antithesis of the teachers of the law who plunder the widow's house and of the prosper- prosperous who only give out of their abundance. And this anonymous woman, some think it's Mary, Mark doesn't say, so I'm not, I'm not going to take a position today, she's the antithesis of Judas, who will betray his master for whatever money the priests offer him. And the tight-fisted disciples, the bystanders, who in their mouths have pious cliches about giving to the poor but ultimately take no action to actually do it. These women stand in contrast. They're supposed to be a lesson for us as disciples. Both women serve as examples of total commitment that hold nothing back. Their deeds do not bring them fame their names have been lost in the midst of time. But the Lord saw them and he knew them. He was moved by them. The disciples in this gospel, in Mark, they're very good at counting the cost of things. You remember in chapter 6 when Jesus tells them to feed the crowd their, like, mental cash registers go off, and they start, who's good at mental math? Anybody good at mental math? Just, like, thinking, yeah. These guys, their mental math goes off, and they're like, this would take 200 denarii to feed these crowds. That's a lot of money, Jesus. And here, they see this jar, and they automatically, you know, like, like you watch some appraisal show or something, like, they're, that's 300 denarii worth of oil. What they don't understand is that if anything was wasted, they say that this oil was wasted, but what they don't understand is that if anything was wasted, it was the widow's two copper coins, that insignificant offering that the widow gave in the temple a few chapters ago. That she donated to the bulging coffers of the flourishing, the uh, appearance of flourishing but spiritually destitute temple system that Jesus has said over and over is coming down. Jesus says this woman here in this story, she's anointed him for burial. What's going on in this woman's mind when she pours this the precious content of this jar over Jesus' head? Mark isn't clear. It's, it's not exactly clear what's going on here. Anointing was a common was common at feasts in the ancient world. This would not have been abnormal for the guest of the feast to be anointed. But is it is it possible that she's extending just a customary courtesy? It seems a little extreme for that. Or does she think possibly that she's anointing the Messiah, that word means anointed one, uh, with oil of crowning and setting him apart for his office? Does she think that she's anointing the coming king? In the Old Testament, kings would be anointed in private And it sometimes signaled revolt. Was she trying to speed this up or or bring this about? Maybe she hopes that it's time for God to intervene in the affairs of Israel with this King Jesus. But if that was her intention, and indeed I think that's true what happened, how ironic the situation was. A woman not a priest or an authorized prophet, anoints Jesus in the home of a leper, an outcast, a social outcast, in the presence of sinners. Jesus is anointed king, the king of sinners. He's the Messiah that's gonna, going to redeem them, Just not the way they see it. And somehow here, this is all tied to the imminent death and burial of Jesus. Jesus says that she anointed him for burial. And as the story plays out, truly this will be the only anointing for burial that Jesus receives. Because when the women go to anoint his body after the crucifixion, what happened? Was he there? No. This was the only anointing for burial he receives. Something of great value had been poured out. And Jesus ties this act to his upcoming death, soon coming death. Later on in this chapter, I think we'll look at it next week, during the Last Supper, Jesus says that his blood is poured out for many. It is his blood is of immeasurable value far more valuable than 300 denarii no price can possibly be put on it yet he will willingly pour it out why the waste of jesus on the cross waste The answer to that question is found in the very attitudes of these indignant grumblers, these disciples of Jesus, the religious and the political leaders in the nation, and ultimately the traitor disciple who would sell Jesus. The world needs a savior, needs a messiah. The text resounds with an affirmation that neither the pure nard poured out, this pure oil poured out, or Jesus' blood that's poured out for many are wasted. These are precious offerings. And it is all connected to the good news, the gospel that we preach, that we proclaim in the whole world. This is the story. Jesus was handed over and betrayed. Poured out his blood as as an offering for us. And what happens next ties this whole section together. If you remember in verse 1, the scribes were seeking a way to arrest Jesus. And now we have Judas seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus, to hand him over to them. Judas is a bit of a puzzle. This is another one that you can take a second and just think through. Like, Take a long second. Think about Ju- Judas. The Gospels are unclear as to his motives. But it seems as if this extravagant offering of worship that this woman poured out on Jesus was sort of the, the last straw for, Jesus, for Judas. It's possible that he had signed up expecting a military political messiah. And when he saw the way things went down in the temple, he saw that the religious and the political leaders did not accept Jesus. Now he's deciding to cut his losses. Possibly, he's just become increasingly aware of the fact that things were not going as he had planned. So he determines that it would be better for him to make a deal with the religious leaders than for him also to be killed. Or perhaps it's more mystical. Luke and John say that Satan entered Judas. Maybe that's just it. Gospels are unclear. But what we see here, verse 10, Judas, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas walked two miles over a mountain, through a valley, at night, in the middle of the night, to sell out Jesus. This was not some, like, convenient idea. This was a deliberate choice that Judas made. Judas, I think, is a good lesson for us as disciples, even with the best example, the most compelling evidence, the finest teaching, the ultimate environment for incubating faith, even all of that, it cannot in and of themselves change the human heart. The best teaching, finest programs, the best leadership structure, the best church environment. It's all powerless to actually change you. You need a work of the Spirit to do that. I think this passage today is supposed to have us comparing and contrasting Judas with this woman. See the contrast. She was moved by love. Judas was pragmatic. She was unreasonable and extravagant. Judas was restrained and logical. She lavished her attention on Jesus. Judas deflected attention away from Jesus. She worshipped him for who he is. Judas fails to see who he is. She was willing to forfeit her wealth for Jesus. Judas forfeits Jesus for wealth and a sense of security. Say that again. She was willing to forfeit her wealth for Jesus. Judas forfeits Jesus for wealth and security. And whenever the gospel is proclaimed... She will be remembered. Unfortunately, so is Judas. He's a part of this story. So, for us as disciples, as apprentices of Jesus, I think there's a worship lesson for us in this text. I believe this is the kind that the worship of this woman is the kind of worship that we as disciples should be marked by. Pure worship like this, so completely consumed with Jesus that there's no thought of self or anyone else in the room. Worship so extravagant that it offends the sensibilities of those who don't understand the worth of Jesus. Jesus. What do you, I'm actually going to go here. What do you mean you're singing indoors? I'm sorry. Jesus is worth it. Even if it costs me my life, Jesus is worth it. I will sing his praise. Worship literally means to ascribe worth to, to give worth to, to express an attitude or a gesture of one's complete dependence or submission to a higher authority, to fall down into worship. The best word picture that I can use to describe, who has a dog? We have a dog? You know when, when your dog is just like so excited to see you laying down at your feet, kissing you? Like just that's worship. That like complete and total love, that picture of a dog that's that's kissing his master's feet, that's that's this picture of worship, just total and complete extravagant surrender that looks ridiculous. That's the kind of worship that we're called to as disciples. Sometimes to do things, to lay everything down at his feet, to give him all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. John Piper says this, it is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections match, and the intensity of our affections correspond. That's a beautiful thing. You guys, church, Jesus is worth it all. He is worthy of all of your affection, all of your time, all of your ambition, all of your energy. He's worthy of it all. And the call for disciples is to not hold anything back. Not keep part of that for yourself, but to lay it all down at his feet. Surrender it all. This morning as I was praying through this, I was thinking about, it's not actually my notes here, but we'll end with this little reading out of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter five. If I can turn there. Revelation five is this scene where, where, uh, well, let's just read it. Then I saw at the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Uh, then I saw at the right hand of the one seated on the throne with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who is worthy to open and break the seals?" That's that question, right? Who is worthy? Then it says, no one was found that was worthy. So John weeps loudly. Then one of the elders said to him, this is verse five, do not weep, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered and he is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. That's Jesus. He has conquered and he is able the lion of the tribe of judah and i love this verse 6 then i saw the one then i saw one like a slaughtered lamb the elder says the lion of the tribe of judah he's conquered you get this picture of this like victorious aslan lion that conquered and john looks and what he sees is a lamb that was slaughtered He is worthy because of the cross. He is worthy because he was slain. He is worthy because he poured out his blood as an offering for you and I, as a covering of our sin and our iniquity. Verse 12, Then they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and other sea and everybody saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to the one who's seated on the throne and the lamb forever. He is worthy because of the cross, because of the offering that he poured out, his precious blood. Worship team can come back up. We're going to close in some worship and we'll take communion together. I just want to encourage you this week to take time. This is, this is a passage to like meditate on. Think about this. What is he worth to you? What is Jesus worth to you? God, I just thank you Jesus, I thank you for your blood that was poured out, this immeasurably valuable offering that you poured out for us. God, I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray that you would show us the worth, the value of your offering, of who you are and what you did for us. Jesus, help us to see the glory of the cross. Your enthronement. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Amen.